1: Hello everyone, I am your host Rituparna Patkiri on New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today I am going to be in conversation with Ori Schwartz. Ori Schwartz is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Barilan University, Ramat Khan, Israel. He has published on Sociological Theory, Cultural Sociology and Digital Society in leading journals including Theory, Culture, and Society and the American Journal of Sociology. His studies of digital society have explored issues such as the logic of unfriending during wartime, digital photography and selfies, identity and boundary work on social network sites, and digital memory. He is the author of the book Sociological Theory for Digital Society, The Codes That Bind Us Together, published by Polity Press in 2021. Ori, I welcome you to this interview. Very glad to have you here today.
0: Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Firstly, I would like to know from you the the inspiration behind this book. What prompted you to write it? It's not that I had a
0: single Eureka moment, but I've been studying digital society for about 15 years now, and um, gradually it became very clear to me that some very basic premises of our sociological theories no longer apply in digital society, that we must systematically adapt our theory books in order to close these gaps between our concepts and our realities. And I think uh, it was at least partly thanks to teaching that it became evident to me, because, you know, when you teach theory, you must be, if you want to be a good teacher, you must be very um, explicit about the implicit assumptions of different theories, which you're not always so explicit about while writing. And then these inconsistencies between theoretical assumptions and contemporary realities become very clear, which is on the one hand, very disturbing, and on the other hand, it's also exciting because there's, you know, it's kind of opportunity for innovation and, and for uh, adaptation. Also, you know, I, 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 I'm, on a second thought, I'm not sure it's that surprising that these gaps emerge because our theories were developed in a specific time. while looking at specific societies informed by specific technologies to solve specific problems. And they are, you know, creature of their time, and they've taken for granted things that seemed obvious, but were eventually revealed as contingent that cannot be taken for granted anymore. That no longer apply as digital technologies transformed our uh, everyday life in, I think, significant ways.
1: Right, right. So you mentioned the influence of teaching. Oh. On your work, as well as the fact that emergence of new digital technologies and the media challenged sociological theory as we have known it. So, I would like to know you from you uh, about the influence of teaching on your work, as well as how your book addresses this question of you know updating the theoretical texts that we have in sociology.
0: Well. <clears throat> I think I'll start with the second one because regarding the first one is it's I don't have any concrete example that comes to my head at the moment it's just that you know I remember that when when you prepare classes you have to be very you know there are these moments that you you phrase very explicitly these implicit assumptions of, of different theories then you said like, hmm that doesn't work like this any anymore uh, you know Actually, I I can give examples. For example, if you think about symbolic interactionism, so the basic assumption is that um, that social life is organized as a sequence of situations in which there are a certain number of participants who monitor one another constantly and are aware of one another. And this is obviously no longer the case. Uh, Social life are no longer, you know, Basic um, building blocks of, of social life are obviously no longer bounded situations. What else you said? Oh, you asked about how the, the book uh, addressed this challenge, right? So basically, it's organized around five thematic chapters, as when each chapter um, is dedicated to a different core concept or core issue associated with a different school of thought. Uh, So there are chapters on uh, interactions and interactionism on social networks and social ontology and social capital on power and on on work and labor. So basically each chapter, uh, I first show how digitalization challenges some premises, how it challenges this conceptualization I discussed and why we cannot simply use it as we used to. And then I point to ways to solve these problems, to revise these theories and discuss the meaning of these transformations for for sociology. This is the formal answer. I can get into this specific, if you want, of of the different chapters. Uh,
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, if I ask you to talk a little bit about the different theoretical traditions that you have referred to in the book and the thematic chapters. What was your logic behind choosing them? If you could elaborate on that.
0: Yeah, sure. Basically I had three criteria. First, I only discussed major concepts and traditions. Um, second, conceptualization that are challenged by digitalization in interesting ways where I felt I could make real contribution. And, and finally, finally, there was this space limit. I mean, I, I plan to write more. I had to stop in the middle. So next time I have a few months free for thinking, probably you know, the next general closure due to zoonotic virus, I promised to finish. Um, I plan to write on solidarity and collective emotion, a few uh, issues that I just didn't have time and space for. But these were basically the three main criteria.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, there is also this idea that you talk about, which is the interaction object duality in your book, which is very interesting. I would like you to explain what it means to our readers.
0: So basically, when I say interaction object duality, what I mean is that when interactions are digitally mediated, they are no longer these fleeting moments in time that interactions once were. They are automatically documented and transformed into durable digital objects. You know, when we have a conversation um, over uh, instant messaging or on social media, the, the protocol of the conversation, all the information that was exchanged remains there as an object. It has an objective existence outside us not only in our memory, and these objects then can do things. They have surprising biographies. Sometimes they are monitored by algorithms as a surveillance tool. Sometimes they are monitored by other people, other humans, that we didn't plan them to be our audiences. They weren't part of the original interaction, which is my main focus. So basically, anytime we interact with one another in the present, using WhatsApp or Facebook, we also create these objects. And this fact, I mean, we used to think about interactions and objects as as two different, completely different categories of things. And in in sociological theories, there is a lot of writing about objects and about interactions, but not at the same place. So now that they collapse, these categories in a sense collapse into one another, what are the consequences you ask. So it has... I can talk about it for hours, so stop me when you want, but I think it has huge consequences both for individuals living in society, for how people live their life and their their challenges and risks and opportunities, and for us sociologists to try to theorize social life. Um, I'll start with with the first one because it probably interests more uh, for people who are not professional sociologists. So so basically, it introduces a lot of um, unpredictability about the future biography, the future audiences, the future meaning given. You know how how these objects are interpreted, given to these objects, because uh, interactions are no longer contained within a situation with a certain number of people in a certain time in a certain place, um, and then algorithms. Have to decide to whom your public posts are shown, and you can't always predict it. Or if it's a private conversation, you, we can always print the screen and share it with other parties, with third parties. So, this introduced a lot of opportunities, and a lot of risk. And in the book, I try to survey them, so basically, and, and also to theorize them. So, basically, it's uh, change power relations by uh, introducing others because power relations are no longer bracketed in the situation we can always bring in other people and it has used huge, huge consequences like you know think about uh, most employees today search for objectified interactions of their job candidates including those that take place in their free time outside the working sphere or in Israel we had during wartime a few years ago a uh, horrific a very, very uh, troubling phenomena when ultra-nationalists search for pro-Palestinian posts by Palestinians called citizens to shame them online and to demand their dismissal. And But it also works the other way around, uh, to, to empower the weak side in conversation and interaction. For example, uh, in the case of sexual harassment, when... Uh, women being harassed can tell their harasser they will be shamed and actually transform the whole interaction because when we take into consideration the fact that we will share the interaction, so of course it deterred the person in front of us, but we also not talk only to this person, we talk to other people who aren't there. So we talk to our audience and we laugh, we, we tell jokes to make them Enjoy this conversation when they read it later. So it transformed the whole situation, but also the power relations. Oh, many people today have these apps that record all their phone calls. So of course, if I talk with my superiors at work or you know powerful people, I can share this with other people and and also transform power relations. But it also transforms the temporality because you know what is temporality? It's the lines of continuity and causality between the present, the past, and the future. And if the past keeps living as objects, so these lines of causality are not only organized by our memory, but also by these objects and the algorithms that regulate their flows and their uh, exposure. So in the book, I I discuss these aspects um, in detail, but I also discuss... Meaning for sociological theory, um, I suggest that we can no longer imagine the social world as consisting of a series of bounded situations, and that instead, and, and you know, this is what interaction is used to do. And instead, we should explore the shifting situatedness of interaction, because interaction is not no longer organized in situation, but people try to delimit interaction to situate, to fix their boundaries of interaction, but also to break these boundaries. And they imagine that these boundaries exist or not, and they prepare for different possibilities. So what I uh, propose in the book is what I call interactionism of a chase, where we follow these uh, dual interaction objects as they transform with all their own fixity.
1: Right. So apart from interactionism, you also talk about social capital, which has been conceptualized by French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. Now, I would want to know from you, and this was one of the most interesting parts, that how does digitization transform social capital and, you know, uh, how does it remold the existing power structures and relations in society?
0: So for, for those listeners who are not familiar with the terms, so social capital is basically the idea that our connection are kind of resource because actors may be able to mobilize some resources belonging to their social ties, to their connection, to their groups, to their friends, to their colleagues, to their acquaintances, whatever. So um, they can give us valuable information, put in a good word for us. Uh, help us, you know, lend us a drill for the weekend or a tent or whatever. So online, where our social networks take an objectified digital form, social capital also takes a materialized form, namely followers. So if, for example, I follow you, you get my attention very easily. So if you had a million followers, it would be much easier for you to convince at least some people to help you, I don't know, to to lend you the tent for the trip on weekend, or to join your the demonstration that you organize, or buy something you sell, or help you find a job, or sign the petition that you write, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you write one post, you spend one minute, you get attention of maybe not a million, but a few hundred thousand people. It's very cost effective. So it's huge power. So first of all, I think that. Um, social capital becomes much more important. And then it explains why individuals and organizations, brands, films, parties, politicians, NGOs, academic journalists, you name it, they all just you know, invest a lot of time and effort and money in producing interesting uh, content because they want us to want to keep following them and to click the follow button. And... I call this generalized social capital because uh, it becomes a kind of general currency, like money, that is valid across social fields, whether it's politics or economy or music or social movement or academia. In all these fields, actors struggle and compete over the same kind of capital, but I suggest that the transformation of social capital goes beyond just being more important, that it actually transforms. And basically, I think it becomes much more money-like. I mean, it, social capital used to be symbolic. It used to work through our consciousness. You know, you felt a sense of obligation to help your friend, a sense of solidarity. You felt you owe this person something. You must help him in return. All this still exists, but now it's also material. So once somebody clicked like or follow, it, or follow, it's digitally registered on the system until they actively remove you. The chances that you are exposed to your attempt to mobilize them to your project increase dramatically. And it's also money-like being quantifiable. You can count how many followers you have and abstract. It's not about each one being different. It's about the number, rather than particular and concrete, and um, it can be confiscated and regulated and devalued by the uh, operators of these platforms. For example, Facebook may decide that you can't use your one million followers if you want to de- uh, to use it for Putinist propaganda. They can also decide that they... Um, Cancel your uh, account, and you lose all your uh, all the social capital that you uh, collected there. Or they can decide that only five percent, rather than ten percent, of your followers will see each post you publish. So it's worth now fifty percent. It's kind of devaluation. So I think the being subjected to central regulation in this form means we have to think about how this transforms power relations. It gives pa- platform operators who control are they are like the banks of our social capital, of our uh, generalized social capital, a lot of power that needs theorization need to, to be taken into consideration.
1: Right, very interesting, Ori. Right. So you also talk of power in your book, right? Now, I also want to know from you how would the conceptualization of power change in a digital society? Since, you know, a lot of it is also about power, as you spoke about social media and, you know, if the followers go away. So how does power relations change?
0: We have a new form of power, algorithmic power. A lot of the decisions of, you know, organizations, governments, uh, firms, are delegated now to to algorithms. And algorithmic power works differently. I mean, it works through rules. Algorithms are rules. In this sense, it's very similar to the bureaucratic power uh, discussed by Weber. But we don't have to know these rules for them to be effective. Neither the, the agents of power, the bureaucrats, nor the objects of power, those being governed, have to be aware of these rules. And actually, we are not. These rules are usually a black box. And of course, this this means that um, the focus of the sociology of power throughout the 20th century focused on the question of free will, of how we are Freer than ever, and still not free. And how our consciousness is subjected to power. No matter if, if you know, there are different theory uh, theories that you know, Luke or Bourdieu or Gramsci and each one took it to a different place, or even Foucault. But the question was also about the way we are subjected through our consciousness. But now we have power, which is material, which doesn't work through the, our consciousness. And it also, it also solves, in a weird way, one of the problematics that organized debates on power throughout the 20th century, namely whether power is, uh, is uh, um, potentiality, as suggested by Weber, or actuality, as suggested by Foucault and his, uh, Latour and their uh, followers, by simply closing these gaps, because now we have rules that are enforced automatically. That you know, for example, think about this new system that will be obligatory in the U.S. starting in two or three years now. It's a new decision to um, be- to um, prevent drunk driving. So these systems are not prohibition on th- drive driving. They try to make it impossible to drive cars while being drunk. And in the same way, the Chinese censorship doesn't just tell people you can't use this word. They, if you write it, you'll go to jail. There are some words that you can't use if you use Chinese social media. And if you try, you'll get an error um, message or your. are um, your message will be delivered without this particular word. It will be just taken away. It's just impossible. So it transforms power and also transforms resistance. Because as we know, power and resistance goes together and their forms go together. So how do we resist this power that enforces itself automatically? And the answer is that people usually try to produce lay knowledge of these hidden rules and to manipulate it and to find a way to f- follow the words of the rules, but not their spirits, to find these uh, these loopholes, to find this way around, these detours, as I called it. So yeah, so I think we definitely need to rethink power, and this only gets More important because ever more decisions, whether it's uh, social um, welfare decisions or decisions uh, on customers or decisions of secret services and police, etc., are are delegated to to algorithms and and many more smart devices now employ this kind of algorithmic power where there are things that are just impossible to do.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, in context of this, I would also want to know how does relations of labor and work change in, you know, the kind of society that you're talking about, and then how does theorization also change in sociology?
0: I think that work, use the word work, and work is a life sphere. It's the opposite of leisure. And we didn't always have these two distinct life spheres. And there's literature, interesting literature about how they evolved. It's a relatively modern phenomenon. So work is a cultural category. And I think work is here to stay. Although work transforms and we <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting uh, empirical research on how uh, for example, the app economy transforms work and how the digitalization of the workspace, even in traditional jobs, transforms work. But work is here to stay. But what transforms, I think, is the relation between work and labour. Because in the 19th century, when Marx criticised the exploitation of labour, he conflated work with labour. And that was the obvious thing to do at this time. I mean, the production of surplus capital by capitalism relied on what we do in the sphere of work. And this is no longer the case. We all engage in producing capital in, in our free time. We, we all contribute to the digital economy outside the, the work sphere. And actually, if you take into consideration the fact that the big tech firms are now among the biggest in you know, in terms of, of uh, share value, the biggest firms in the world, it's a huge part of the world economy, now relies on value produced not from the work of hired workers, but from labour conducted by users, then then it appears that this relation is eventually contingent, that work and labour are not always going together. I I find it very, very, very interesting.
1: So last question, Ori, after this very interesting conversation, you argue that the book is not an endeavor to develop digital sociology as a sub-discipline. I would want to know from you, why do you think so? Why is that the case?
0: Uh, you know, it's funny because it's it's a question that I'm asked a lot about this book. Um, and I, I I was surprised to be asked a lot about, about this issue. So, Okay so first I don't want it to sound as if I have anything against digital sociology I certainly don't creating new subdisciplines is how the scientific world evolves and it how change is institutionalized you know we create sub-disciplines with their own journals and debates and curricula and conferences and jobs and graduate students and and uh, opaque jargon etc etc and it's perfectly fine it makes sense to have sub-disciplines studying algorithms social media and digital surveillance so it's not debt that, that i'm against but Subdisciplines are like, I think, um, in a building, it's like the upper floor of specialised knowledge, which is built on top of the ground floor, the shared theoretical assumptions and conceptualizations of our discipline. And I feel that sociologists of digital society can't just leave untouched these core assumptions and concepts and theories of the discipline, that we should renovate the ground floor, that we have much to contribute there. Well, so... You know, it's okay to to have some division of labor, but the fragmentation of knowledge is maybe sometimes dangerous. That we we'll lose our common ground, and then our shared concept may become ossified if we, you know, if we don't keep revising these old concepts. Digitalization changes the answer to core questions that are not unique to digital sociology that belong to the ground floor, how people resist to power is a basic question, or how power operates, what are the basic building blocks of social life, how the actions of different individuals join to something bigger. These are core questions. Sociology once was, and I think it should be, the core basic discipline of the social sciences. And I believe that our traditions are still relevant and can do this job, but we have to revise them and to adapt them to the changing technosocial reality. And I think this is relevant to all sociologists. You know, digitalization is not just another life sphere like law or war or sexuality it transforms all life skills. We no longer live in the 1990s where we could imagine that there is this thing with with computers over there and it has nothing to do with the rest of the thing we study. And so it it intertwined in how we love and work and trade and fight for social justice, it's everywhere. And it's not a side issue. So what I'm against is not digital sociology as such, but I'm very much against this feudalist state of mind that gives up our shared ground floor just because it's less crowded in our separate territories and I want us to go to renovate the ground floor.
1: All right, very interesting. Thank you so much for... Being in a conversation with me and giving New Books Network this time, I'm sure that our readers and audience would appreciate the book and the interview will give them newfound motivation to read it. So thank you so much, ori
0: Thank you.